I want to give a quick thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. You really help keep the lights on at Dirty History. And everyone else, if you value the show as an educational resource, meaning you learn things you didn't know you wanted to know, and laugh at things you didn't know you could, consider supporting the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. Patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. It may be just $1 a month, which only adds up to $12 a year, but for me and the show, it means everything. It's almost like if you saw me on the streets and you and I had some free time, would you buy me a cup of coffee? That's supporting the show on Patreon. Help me make the show what we want it to be. Patreon.com slash Dirty History. Thank you. And with that, on with the show. I'm curious about what happens when we die. I don't mean I care where our souls go or whether or not we have souls that travel. I'm not interested in death ethereally. I can't say I want to talk about consciousness either. Rather, very generally, I want to know what happens to these these bone machine meat wagons once the clock strikes midnight. And this shouldn't come as a shock, but there are different ways in which different cultures deal with their dead. However, there is one inevitability we all face after death. Decay. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. So take a moment and think about death. If you're anything like me, you do this often. Maybe maybe you fear it. Maybe it's a sweet embrace. Perhaps it's a cold silence where no one will ever bother you and it will all be okay. Maybe it's the kind of movies you're into. Perhaps it's like Kurt Vonnegut describes it. A violet light and a hum, so it goes. Whatever your thoughts, there are some common misconceptions we should clear up about our lifeless corpses. Chief among these is that we don't often think about death as a beginning, but rather it is the end of ends. We die, and that's that. That's all she wrote. We're out of the gene pool, we bought the farm, the clock struck midnight, we kicked the bucket, the fat lady sang, we're dead. However, going forward, we should be thinking of death as the beginning of an intricate process, both culturally, and chemically. As W.E.D. Evans finds in his book The Chemistry of Death, quote, Death is not an unaltering state, and far from being an inert mass, the dead body is, under normal circumstances, subject to many complex and, often enough, only partly investigated changes, arising from intrinsic as well as extrinsic causes, which bring about quite substantial chemical and morphological alterations of the tissues, though attention has tended to be drawn to the visible structural modifications, then to the chemical changes. Let's break that down. What Evans meant by that is precisely the opposite of how many of us, myself included, have thought about death. You see, we're not just worm food once we die. The body has a few more tricks up its sleeves. It's still very active upon death. The only problem is we don't always 
get to see these said tricks because the corpses are often disposed of under normal circumstances, and perhaps that is where the expediency of burial practices has arisen. After all, who wants to look at a s- or smell a rotting corpse? I mean, that's the chief reason for me why I'd want to bury a corpse. It's an oversimplification, of course, and rather, rather monolithic. But it is a topic I want to exhaust. And to fully understand death and the topic for this two-part series, Burial Practices, we should work somewhat backward on this topic. Although, I would argue this is the precise order in which someone should consider a cross-cultural analysis of death and burial, since I think what we talk about in this episode will to a degree inform that which is to follow in the next. This series will look at the chemistry of death while also analyzing and observing various case studies of burial practices and rituals. It is crucial in comprehending how humans treat death to possess a base understanding of the chemical functions playing on human corpses, which are only mildly disturbing. Once we achieve that understanding, we could discuss the cultural functions playing upon the human corpse. You see, it's chemistry preceding culture. The natural and socially constructed functions all bearing down on our lifeless carcass. And to discuss chemistry in terms of human death and decay, we must do that in stages. And which, it's interesting, because much like there are stages in coping with death, terminal illness, or loss, and we all know what they are, the Kubler-Ross model seems to be the gold standard. We have denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. There are also chemical stages of death and decomposition. And this system begins at the end. Death. After all, you wouldn't be able to ascertain death without death having occurred because that would be, well, nonsensical. When we're approaching the questions around death, the first is always when. We look at dying as when someone departed. The first line of obituary is typically your lifespan and when you died. The same is true for the typical headstone. We are creatures of habit that measure life in terms of years lived. And time is important for both a chemical and cultural understanding of death. So our first question, can we gauge with any accuracy a pinpoint of when we died? And apparently within 24 hours, your best bet is to do that with one of two methods. The first, you can measure the potassium level of the gel inside your eyes. A study which used 200 samples of the vitreous humor, the aforementioned gel in the eye, found that by measuring the composition of certain substances, you get a clearer timeline of death that may not be obtainable in other measurement techniques like your second option, which involves something called algor mortis, which is how dead bodies cool, the change of body temperature post-mortem. This stage of death is actually the second. It follows polar mortis, which refers to the paleness of the skin found in the newly dead. That often occurs directly after death, usually some 15 to 20 minutes, as capillary circulation collapses throughout the body. So, let me break that again. To reiterate, pallor mortis is the first stage of the death process, 
and it refers to the first 15 to 20 minutes after death when the skin appears pale due to the collapse of capillary systems throughout the body. However, that's not a good gauge on time of death, which brings us back to Algor Mortis, the second stage, which refers to the cooling of dead bodies. And the most used technique for acquiring the temperature of a dead body was to take a measurement in the rectal cavity or of internal organs. You see, this was widely thought to be an effective measure since the most internal parts of the body would cool a uniform and measurable rate. But that is assuming the body is not affected by, by the multivariable environmental conditions, which may include extreme cold, heat, rain, or humidity, as is the case with some of the stories we'll cover later in this episode. But barring the aforementioned extreme situations, the average corpse's temperature drops 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit per hour until it reaches room temperature. So, in addition to the two measurement methods I have just described, you can also look at whether or not, or if, rigor mortis has even set in. But I found in the research that the first two options are by far more reliable. So, we've determined the time of death. And from here, we work exclusively in stages. The stages of death and the stages of decomposition. And while both stages that I'm about to describe sound similar in places, they are describing two separate but interrelated functions. And I can't help but think this is kind of strange, but at the same time it makes perfect sense. The reliance on stages and a strict structure and talking about how we die. I mean, there's so many things that occur in the world that are beyond our knowing, and we just describe them as they are. We have to make sense of death. We put death in stages. This is what happens at this stage and that stage, so you know exactly what you can expect when you die. Perhaps this is just me pontificating, or maybe this is actually saying something about how humans cope with death, even in science. Anyway... I just thought it's interesting how we focus so much on stages and death. Anyway, we've covered the first two stages of death, polar mortis and algor mortis. We mentioned the third, rigor mortis, which sets in under normal circumstances visibly around two hours after death and can last some 30 hours after that. And this is probably the one stage most of us have heard of or have some idea of what it is. Essentially, rigor mortis is the stage of death characterized by the stiffness of limbs and the chemical changes in muscle tissue. As a matter of fact, it literally translates to, quote, the stiffness of death. With rigor coming from the Latin regire, to be stiff, and mortis, coming from the Latin mortus, the past participle of morior, to die. You see, the two principal aspects playing out upon the human body and rigor mortis are as found in D.E. Gould's The Resolution of Rigor Mortis, quote, one, a shortening or contraction of the muscle fiber, and two, a loss of muscle extensibility. And from there, you can break rigor mortis down into more complex functions, but that's not really the point of this episode. We only really need the broad strokes. However, we should recognize for what our purposes rigor mortis looks like. And while 
There may be more effective means of gauging time of death than looking only or exclusively at rigor mortis. The stage can help shed some light onto many of the questions surrounding death. For example, this particular account comes from the International Journal of Applied and Basic Medical Research. The case described took place in India, where an unknown 25-year-old female was found dead. She was laying on her back, but yet her limbs, which were stiffened due to rigor mortis, were pointed upward toward the sky, defying gravity. The, quote, head and trunk of the victim were resting on the back, with the face slightly tilted toward the right. The right upper limb rested on the ground, the left upper limb and the left lower limb lied raised from the ground level and were held up high because of what appears as the feet being grasped by the hand. The right leg, flexed at hip and knee, lied elevated from the ground, defying gravity. The direction of salivary dribbling from the mouth was directed toward the left side of the face, again, defying gravity. Now, there were photographs accompanying the description, and they illustrated almost perfectly the title of this article, Rigor Mortis in an Unusual Position Forensic Considerations. From what I just described, the authors were able to deduce the following. Quote, The scene of death is unlikely to be the place where the dead body was found. The victim's dead body was disposed of after positioning it in an unusual way, with its you know, left limb pointed towards the ground, grasped by the right hand, defying gravity. The dead body must have reached the final place after about two hours to a maximum of six hours after death. And also, the death is homicidal in nature. That gets me. Forensic experts would be able to deduce those key ideas simply because of how rigor mortis set in. That's just plain interesting to me. Moreover, the fact that rigor mortis sets in and then the limbs stood up against gravity illustrates just how powerful of a function it is. I mean, a dead, lifeless body, able to withstand for an extended period of time the force of gravity weighing down upon it. I mean... I can't even maintain the plank position for longer than a minute 30. And yet, our corpse, locked into place, can stand up against gravity for some, what, 30 hours, perhaps, depending on when rigor mortis sets in? Which takes me to the fourth stage of death. It's called liver mortis. L-I-V-O-R. Liver mortis. Liver being a bluish color. Mortis, again, death. So the bluish color of death. This stage kicks in 20 to 30 minutes after death, but it is not terribly noticeable to the human eye for a few hours. In this stage, it goes by a few different names. Liver mortis, post-mortem lividity, hypostasis, suggulation. At this stage, blood begins to pool in certain areas, as it is no longer pumping through veins and arteries. For example... If someone dies laying on their back and they were not moved, the blood would pool at the person's back, which leads to discoloration. Again, I saw a few photographs in which there was someone laying on a table and they were dead, and the whole back side of their body, the lower half of their legs and back, 
it was all like this purplish, reddish, greenish, bluish color. It looked like it was just a big bruise running the whole length of their body. That is postmortem lividity, live or mortis. That's blood pooling at the back. Which now leads me to the next stage in the death process, which is putrefaction. And with that, I think this is the best juncture to jump over to the process of decomposition. Because putrefaction, you'll see it plays into this whole idea of decomposition. And um, the process of decomposition begins with fresh death. Arpad Voss, a forensic anthropologist, asserts that the decomposition of humans begins some four minutes after death with something called autolysis or self-digestion. However, this whole process of decomposition does not become visible to the human eye for a few days, which is why I'm jumping over just now. But when it does become apparent, boy does it really become apparent. I'm about to get into what you will begin to see as decomposition sets in, and um, I don't think at this point in the show's run that I have to give a um, I don't know, a trigger warning or like a, hey, this is about to get graphic, but this may get graphic if you have a younger listener around, but um, whatever. When it becomes apparent, you would notice large fluid-filled blisters on the skin and, quote, skin slippage. This is where large sheets of skin just slough off the body. Large sheets of skin slough off the body. What the shit? This stage of autolysis is running in tandem with algor mortis, liver mortis, and rigor mortis. And after enough nutrient-rich fluid is released from rupturing cells, the process of putrefaction will begin. Dr. Voss finds that putrefaction first becomes visible to the human eye in the greenish discoloration of the flesh. And once you see that greenish discoloration of the flesh, the next step is going to set in, and that's bloating. And this is which tissue is distended due to the buildup of various gases, typically in the bowels. But Voss noted again that he has seen similar distension beyond the bowels throughout the body, notably in the face, lips, and groin. He continues that the buildup of fluid and gas in the bowels will usually purge from the rectum, but will sometimes be so great that it can tear through the skin. And once these fluids and gases purge from the rectum, active decay begins, which is our next stage, decomposition. Electrolytes are just leaching out of the body at this point. Bacteria is present in huge numbers, and insect activity can occur. Dr. Voss then discusses the stages and process of decomposition, which I believe for our purposes is worth mentioning. Quote, Historically, the progression of human decomposition has been described as taking place in four stages. Fresh, autolysis, bloat, putrefaction, decay, which is putrefaction in carnivores, and dry, diagenesis. Current thinking is that it should be segregated into pre- and post-skeletonization 
steps and stages are not always observed, and in fact, may be totally absent. All these processes together, autolysis, putrefaction, diagenesis, eventually result in complex structures composed of proteins, carbohydrates, sugars, collagen, and lipids returning to their simplest building blocks, essentially dust to dust. And listen, I don't want to oversimplify the process of death and decomposition. It is it is such a complex system affected by minute changes in chiefly temperature and moisture. Now that, that all said, Dr. Voss did develop a formula for timing someone's journey from death to skeletonization. Again, this formula assumes the body is exposed to a temperature of 10 degrees centigrade and that the person is neither buried nor submerged in water nor exposed to greater or less than average levels of insect and carnivore activity. All of those assumptions in place, 128.5 days. Now, large amounts of carnivore and insect activity can speed that along, as can increases in temperature and moisture. For example, summertime in temperate regions of the United States, with insect activity at the average levels, a body can be skeletonized in 30 to 40 days. And what happens once we're skeletonized? Great question. As for our newly revealed bones, there was a timeline for that. Quote, As a general rule, bones within the first year will begin to bleach, and one may see growth of algae or moss upon them. Within the first decade, one will expect to see exfoliation and the formation of large cracks in the bones. Roots from nearby vegetation may grow into the bone mass. Significant rodent gnawing will be present, and the appearance of annual leaf falls is evident. So, all told, the science behind death and decomposition that I have submitted to you leaves some questions that need to be addressed. And I think a case study would be appropriate. So let's consider St. Cuthbert and see what stages of death did or did not play out upon him. Cuthbert died in 687 CE. This happened after battling an illness for three weeks. And, as we already know, he lost. Immediately upon death, his body is washed. He is dressed in some fresh robes and a headcloth, and the body is placed to rest in a stone sarcophagus. End of story, right? Except, it isn't. Death, after all, is not an unaltering state. Cuthbert is not ultimately at rest. Air quotes you can't see. No, Eleven years later, the tomb of St. Cuthbert, the stone sarcophagus, is opened, and the body is found to be, quote, incorrupt. So, what do those who found the incorrupt corpse of St. Cuthbert do? Well, simple. They remove the headcloth and redress him. That's what you do with all the dead bodies, right? And you lay the body to rest for another, oh, I don't know, 177 years until 875. 
when Cuthbert's body is once again exhumed, but this time it is transported around northern England for an unspecified amount of time, and that is where the Cuthbert timeline gets a little fuzzy. You see, the body may have been exhumed again in 944, and possibly again some 20 to 30 years after that, and just as the dates surrounding the exhumations are spotty in this period, so is any account of the condition of the body. We do know, however, that the bones of another person are laid in with Cuthbert's body during this period. So, we have, I don't know, one, two, three, four exhumations of this St. Cuthbert fella, and another person's bones are put in his tomb with him. Rather, I'm sorry, they're put in with his sarcophagus with him. Now that's, of course, confirmed when in 1104, Cuthbert's corpse is seen again, and it is still not a skeleton. I know, I said skeletonization can occur in the temperate United States in 30 to 40 days. So what the hell? And before we continue, what the hell is up with exhuming a corpse so many times? How many times do you need to look at a dead body to be like, yep, he's dead? It would be like me going to my great-grandmother and saying, listen, Grandma, I know you said Grandpa's dead, but I wasn't there when it happened, so just a little look-see and all my suspicions are allayed. We get the town gravedigger, Joseph Abernathy, S-E-F in the name Joseph, so you know he's serious, and we get together and we dig up my dead grandfather. This got dark, and we say, hey, you know what? Well, we got Pops here dug up. We might as well put some fresh clothes on him. You never know who's going to run into out here. These graveyards are busy these days with all these digging ups. Who knows what Tom, Dick, or Harry's going to dig up my great-grandfather's dead body next and redress him. But that is essentially what this Cuthbert story is. I mean, the example I just gave was highly sarcastic and highly absurd and surreal. It's not obviously going to happen. I'm not going to go dig up my great-grandfather and redress him. But that is what this Cuthbert story is describing, a series of exhumations and redressings. In fact, we know in 1537, maybe 38, you know, end of the year, Cuthbert's body is seen again, and it's still intact. His body has been in apparently good condition for some 850 years. A couple centuries pass, and his body is exhumed again, in 1827, and then finally, it's a skeleton, which was confirmed in 1899, which I absolutely love. Hey, we got a skeleton in here. All right, we'll look back in 30, 40 some years and confirm that it is indeed a skeleton. I have never confirmed that something has been skeletonized, but to each their own. So why does Cuthbert's body last so long? Why is it seemingly impervious to the natural course of decomposition? I mean, what was it? Was it the robes? Was it the washing? Was it the lack of moisture in a stone sarcophagus? Was it the bones of another laid with him? What, what caused Cuthbert's body to not decompose in the natural stages of decomposition? I'm not really sure. i got to be honest with you. I mean, we we noted how temperamental these stages can be. And that's the point 
of the Cuthbert aside. It is that chemical stages of decomposition only apply assuming that the natural course is taken. And even then, the stages are affected with even the smallest alteration. And again, temperature, humidity, light, air. For, an ex- for another example, there was an account from 1946 of the condition of 335 men who were shot and killed or died in some other way. They were victims of war. And their bodies were stacked in a cave that was remarkably dry. The men were clothed, and it was found that the clothing had delayed the putrefaction process of the bodies. And then in the stacks of the men in that dry cave, some men were possibly mummified. Many accounts vary like this when you take into consideration the small changes that dead bodies can be exposed to. I mean, well-nourished bodies were better preserved than those sparely covered. If you were buried in a large coffin with a lot of wood shavings in the coffin, your body would decompose quicker than another buried in a different type of caution with fewer wood shavings for the same period of time. The last example had something to do with moisture being drawn into the wood shavings, thereby increasing the humidity in the coffin, which speeds along the decomposition process. And those microscopic changes in air, humidity, light, air, I said air twice, but whatever, those microscopic changes really tell the tale as to how your body will decompose and when your body will decompose. Those changes are everything. So perhaps someone is found immediately when they die, like Cuthbert, or they die in front of people. What are the chemical alterations playing upon the body in preparation for burial? For example, what if someone is embalmed or mummified, or if they are cut into pieces to be fed to birds? What happens to the dead bodies outside of the natural function? That's going to be the primary focus of next week's episode. But let's assume the body is cremated. W.E.D. Evans, again, comes through. He provides an in-depth description of the cremation process as follows. A heads up. Again, this does get graphic. Quote, The skin and hair at once scorch, char, and burn. Heat coagulation of muscle protein may become evident at this stage, causing the muscles slowly to contract. And there may be a steady divercation of the thighs, which gradually developing flexation in the limbs. There is a popular idea that early in the cremation process, the heat causes the trunk to flex forward violently so that the body suddenly sits up bursting open the lid of the coffin. But this has not been observed personally, nor has this been described to the author by anyone in attendance at cremations in the London district. The account goes on. Occasionally, there is swelling of the abdomen before the skin and abdominal muscles char and split. The swelling is due to the formation of steam and the expansion of gases in the abdominal cavity. Destruction of the soft tissues gradually exposes parts of the skeleton. The skull is soon devoid of covering, 
and the bones of the limbs appear commencing at the extremities of the limbs where they are relatively poorly covered by muscle or fat and the ribs also become exposed. The small bones of the digits, wrists, and ankles remain untied by their ligaments for a surprising length of time, maintaining the anatomical relationships even though the hands and feet may fall away from the adjacent long bones. The abdominal contents burn fairly slowly, and the lungs more slowly still. It has been observed that the brain is especially resistant to complete combustion during the cremation of the body. Even when the vault of the skull has broken and fallen away, the brain has been seen as a dark, fused mass with a rather sticky consistency. And the organ may persist in this form for most of the time required for the general destruction of the remains. Indeed, in one personally observed instance, the contents and the brain were recognizable 90 minutes after the cremation had begun. Eventually, the spine becomes visible as the viscera disappear, the bones grow whitely in the flames, and the skeleton falls apart. Some bones fragment into pieces of various sizes, while other bones remain whole. Aside from specially made cremation furnaces, burning a body on, say, a funeral pyre, which for some reason is how I want to go, did not guarantee that the corpse would be completely cremated once the fuel has been burned through. Assuming all went well, however, the remaining white powder that came from the cooled and crushed ashes typically weighs in the ballpark of three to four pounds. Again, assuming the body is fully cremated and not partially combusted. And again, assuming this is on like an average weight of a human body or whatnot, different body weights would, again, give different weights and ashes and powder. And I think this is the best segue into the next episode. I was going to do this all as one part, but I figured, you know what? I think it would be more impactful to break up the chemical and the cultural. So this episode may be slightly shorter than what we're accustomed to, but it is for a purpose. And we'll follow it up directly with the cultural episode. Taken in tandem, I think they will give you a lot. And this is a lot to process. I went over a lot of complex functions. This may require a second listen, perhaps. I know I will probably listen to it again because I find it very fascinating. And while it may not be directly history, it does apply itself to some historical case studies, which I find interesting. But cremation is in itself a burial practice, not practiced all over the world, perhaps, but there are some definite chemical things playing out upon a body during cremation. And that is why I think this is the best place as any to say, you know what, we're going to hang up our hats here, I'll talk to you in a week and a half, and we'll do this next episode. So, I hope you learned a lot. I hope I only mildly freaked you out. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this 
has been Dirty History. And if you like what you heard here, you can find more things dirty and everything history on our website, dirtyhistorypod.com. If you like the show and you value it as an educational resource, you can support what we do on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. It might be just a dollar for you, but every bit helps. Thank you and a shout out to this month's patrons, Alicia Woods, Ronnie New, and Billy Littlefield. Thank you. You make this show possible. You can stay up to date on the show by following our social medias, Instagram at Dirty History Pod, Twitter at Pod Dirty, P-O-D-D-I-R-T-Y, and on Facebook. We also have a Tumblr. I don't know what the hell Tumblr does, but we have one, and we're active on it. This would actually be a perfect time to stay up to date on those things as we will have some exciting announcements coming up in the near future. We have a lot going on behind the scenes that I know you will be excited about if you're a fan of the show or a fan of podcasts in general. Keep an eye out. That's uh, Instagram at Dirty History Pod, Twitter at Pod Dirty, Facebook and Tumblr. Just look up Dirty History Podcast. The show's art director and producer is our in-house renaissance man, Woodrow Cower. The show's script is edited in part by Andrew Henley. I'm Thomas Thompson. Thank you for wanting to know what you shouldn't. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>